Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, critic Mark Greif on his literary journal M Plus One and on his new collection of essays, Against Everything. Mark Greif studied history and literature at Harvard and English at Oxford as a British Marshall Scholar. In 2004, he co-founded the literary journal M Plus One in New York and has been a principal at the magazine since then. He earned a PhD in American Studies from Yale in 2007, and since 2008 he has been on the faculty of the New School in New York, where he is currently an associate professor. His previous book, The Age of the Crisis of Man, Thought and Fiction in America, 1933-1973, was published in 2015. Greif has been a member of the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, and for 2016-17 he is a fellow at the Centre for Advanced Study in the Behavioural Sciences at Stanford University. And Mark's latest book is the essay collection, Against Everything, which we're, we're going to talk about today in the main. So, Mark, welcome to Little Atoms first. Thanks very much. Um, but before we talk about Against Everything, it would be remiss of me as the publisher of a, a newly minted small magazine not to talk about M plus one for a while. So um, what was the idea behind M plus one? Well, the grand or lofty idea was very much to publish, uh, I don't know, works of nonfiction, fiction too, but principally essays that just couldn't be done elsewhere. You know, um, I started it with friends, and everybody now is known for a single thing, writing uh, fiction. A few of them are novelists or doing journalism. Some work for The New Yorker now or memoirs. But at the time, you know, we were in our early 20s. Everybody was writing things that really mattered to them and that were close to their heart. And yet the only thing that, that we could actually publish were reviews. So if you had any kind of real thought or something that weighed upon you and had to be said, you know, you had to pretend that, like, you had discovered it listening to the new Spice Girls album or something that dates it. Um, so the idea was to be able to start from zero and have people write directly about the things that just bothered them most or worried them most. And so this is 2004. It's not that long ago, but the entire cultural landscape has changed since then, like the internet and what have you. So what was the literary and academic landscape like at that point when you were launching it? Well, it's funny. I think it was horrifically bad. Now, in 2016, people seem to be worrying about all sorts of things. In America, they keep speaking about the coming unraveling, or maybe it's already unraveling. But God, they've clearly forgotten. 2016 is wonderful. 2004, 
politics seem to be not only uh, endlessly mendacious, but unbelievably murderous and violent. The U.S. had just uh, invaded Iraq based entirely on lies. And, and that was quite clear at the time, too. I think people forget. <laughs> it's not just retrospective. And um, there was this transition to the Internet, but at that time, I think not very many well-established places where you could go and read certainly anything that was more than a short blog post. In fact, when we started N Plus One, we got all, all sorts of trouble and worry from uh, the Internet, from people who were angry at us for not starting a blog, since that was the new thing and the revolutionary thing. That's changed a lot. I mean, at this moment in 2016, I think there are a whole host of small magazines in print, which are quite good, um, a lot online, which are terrific. Back then, our great heroes in the U.S., The Baffler, which had been this critical journal from Chicago, you know, mercilessly funny about the nonsense of tech culture, money culture, all the rest. They'd had a fire, and the place had burned down, and they were they had stopped publishing. And so it felt like, in this tradition of you know just needing to keep one of these things alive, well, we thought we'd do one for a few years <laughs> until you know until a flood came for us, and then the next people. But in fact, things have turned out much better than than we ever anticipated. And so, how did how did you get it off the ground? What were the sort of hurdles to launching the journal in the first place? Well, the big question is money, you know, and uh, I think whenever small magazine people, the people who like this stuff or, or who do them get together, the first thing you ask is where did the money come from and how much did it cost? Uh, right about the time that we'd started, Dave Eggers had launched McSweeney's. And one very useful thing about that magazine, which we actually disliked and resented enormously because it was playful and we wanted to be serious and and it was in many ways in flight from universities and I suppose we were partly in flight from universities, but wanted to take with us all the things that were in their libraries. Anyway, one useful thing that Eggers did was to record in the front matter to the first few issues the costing uh, for you know what he had done, and it cost him $10,000 to do the first issue. So we figured, well, that's actually within range compared to all the difficult things in the world. And so four of us, we each put in uh, $2,000. I apologize if this is too much nuts and bolts. And, uh, you know, mine came from a graduate stipend. Thank you, U.S. government. I think they no longer even offer that kind of funding for students. And um, that was all it took. Oh, and then uh, we had 8,000. We rounded up uh, every friend, relative, or person we could convince on the street to buy a, a $20 subscription, and we got our last $2,000. It was a funny enterprise, although, as it turns out, very like many small magazines, in that all we wanted to do was create an object that would fool everyone into believing it was a real magazine and something that would be genuinely great, actually, in the content, where we would make up for lack of funding and everything else with the quality of the writing. But as soon as the thing came out uh, and people would read it and they would say, oh, what's your phone number? We'd love to call you. Or where's your office? (laughs) Of course, there was no phone number. There was no office. There was nothing. I mean, I would go and stay in my grandmother's uh, apartment for a couple of months to do it. And then, I mean, most of us didn't even live in New York. So uh, it's a funny enterprise because the, I mean, I wouldn't, what do they call them? The cost of entry mm-hmm. are very, very low. And yet sometimes people just produce junk yeah. uh, with a whole lot of money. So it's funny in that way. And so what was the reception like when it first came out? You've already mentioned the idea that people were saying, oh, you know, why have you done a magazine? Why not a blog? You know, this is the time for that. But critically, what was the reception like? Well, one thing that was really useful, it was well appreciated, I think, initially, because um, at least in small circles, there is a world of people who just love these journals. I mean, I count myself as one of them and know them historically. Um, and we had known them historically. I mean, I sat down and read through 
the run of the Partisan Review from from uh, 1936 to 1956, <laughs> partly to see what they're like and partly out of pleasure. So that if you create a magazine that includes articles that take as long as they need to, to say what they need to say, but aren't bloated, don't slow down, etc. If there is a real combination of politics with everyday life and with literature and the arts, you know, things aren't in their different pockets, people will recognize the ambition of it right away. And then it's just a question of whether your stuff's any good or not. And um, we actually got a fairly good reception. And what was nice, too, is that the first issue sold out, which was the goal, and that allowed us to pay for a second issue. Second issue sold out, which was a goal that paid for a third issue. And with the third, uh, it was sort of picked up by the New York Times as the opponent to a much, much bigger magazine, um, The Believer. And it is, it's just strange and corrupt in its way, but life is what it is, the way that media works. Once the thing was legible as something that the New York Times could believe in, well, it transformed the subscription space and it meant that suddenly, you know, we could pay for two issues ahead. It was a real magazine then. So in that sense, it actually wasn't that challenging. And now it's on... Issue 26. Yes, now we've grown old. Yeah, so to what extent has it stayed true to that initial vision for it as it's grown and become a much more viable, like a proper magazine? Yeah, well, I mean, the biggest change has been that, in a sense, we handed it off. I mean, so that, you know, someone said to me recently, oh, are you now an editor emeritus? which was about the nicest possible way to put it. I mean, I often feel just like a um, kind of friendly ghost hovering above the proceedings. Things changed because, first of all, young people who came in as interns, unpaid interns, uh, began working on the magazine so much and without the expectation we'd had that you would just always have a day job and never actually be paid by the magazine, that we had to find ways to pay them. Uh, Whereas those of us who started it, all of us are still in our various day jobs. I teach, and the magazine was never a career But the magazine now is run by people who started as interns, both of our uh, editors-in-chief, Dana Tortorici and Nikhil Saval, um, came in as interns, you know, seven or five years ago. And when I see the staff meetings, it's completely transformed insofar as they're just all younger people coming in. The other thing, actually, that we've been very proud of because of the economics of these, of small magazines and of publishing generally, is that now there are three people on on full-time salary and, and healthcare, which for the U.S. is a big deal. Um, which may not seem like much, but that for us was the mark of having transformed in some sense what had been a kind of, you know, a project that if it burned up or died wouldn't matter to anybody but ourselves to something that actually had to last. Well, that's a a great achievement, but it also means suddenly there are responsibilities there. It does become a thing that other people depend on rather than a thing that ultimately you're doing for fun. That's true. And, you know, even in talking to the younger editors in, in editorial meetings and fighting over things, it's clear because of the structure of the magazine, but also because of where U.S. politics and intellectual life have gone, the magazine has become much more practically political, let's say, more militant. And also, I mean, from the kind of airy-fairy fantasies I had initially, much more remedial even. I mean, in the early days, I would say, look, if somebody could find a piece of information somewhere else, they should read it somewhere else. Or, you know, if somebody submits to us even a great piece, if it could go in another magazine, then, then let it go there. And, you know, at least someone will pay them a decent amount of money. Whereas now, things that we just dreamed about in U.S. politics, you know, defending a a kind of basic minimum income or all sorts of things which seemed impossible at the time suddenly are on the table. Um, And after Occupy and Black Lives Matter, there is much more of a push in the magazine even to explain or declare in favor of very familiar things in politics, 
which in the past I think we would have just left aside. You've already mentioned this idea that there are magazines, you know, there's lots of magazines out there, and it is only like people questioned us when we said we were going to start is this really the best point in history to be starting a print magazine and it's only really when you look into it that you realize that there is this like amazing culture of small magazines i don't think you were ever going to become like vanity fair or whatever but there is there's thousands of magazines out there so it's a really healthy healthy little industry isn't it well this is the best time in history to start a little magazine <laughs> because you know because yeah the the function of the little magazine or small magazine to uh paraphrase Lionel Trilling's essay or whatever you know it it really is to do something totally different from the big ones i mean it's a space of kind of free research and preservation and madness sometimes right it ought to be the place where someone can genuinely say something freely because they know that at most 300 600 or 1000 people are likely to read it and because it really is cheap and the thing that makes it so good right now, because there does seem to be a world of them, they become these little cells that aren't separate, but they really communicate and fight. You know, and there is quite a grand history of it. The thing that the internet adds, I think, even to small magazines in print, is that when you go back and look at, you know, Coleridge, like roaming around trying to get subscribers to his little magazine, or even T.S. Eliot in the early 20th century, their absolute numbers just can't be very great because people in other countries, people far away, etc., just can't figure out how to subscribe or they wouldn't know it exists. Whereas now, the numbers are never going to be huge. You're never going to be vanity fair. But there's a much greater likelihood that somebody anywhere will stumble upon this thing you've created and, and be like, oh, you know, what would be the worst thing you could possibly say? Why we should um, kill and devour children? I suppose Jonathan Swift has, uh, <laughs> has the edge on that already. But, oh, I didn't realize anyone was defending that. Perfect. At last I can subscribe. <laughs> I'm Andrew Muller. Check out the growing Little Atoms media empire at littleatoms.com. So let's move on to Against Everything then. So this is a book of essays, and it covers quite a, a range of time that you've collected them from. So what did you want this book to do? For me, these really are the N plus one essays. You know, they're the things that uh, I couldn't publish anywhere else, and I wouldn't have written were there not the other editors to say cruel things to me as they edited them and, and the readers to, to kind of write mean letters, as usually happened. A friend said to me, oh, well, you've just written uh, the slowest and longest taking <laughs> book ever as a single book. And in my 20s, I had these very particular things I was worried about, you know, whether progress, let's say, in a whole host of areas in medicine and science and so forth has really yielded any progress for us in how we think about what the good life would be, what it is that goes on on reality television, really, in, a, in imagining a country or its people, all of these sorts of things that seemed like single projects, and I wanted to write in very grand ways, but no one else wanted to publish from me, you know, unless I were arguing something I thought already universally known. So as I look back at these essays, they do go back to 2003 on all sorts of things, war, police, etc., to me, they really hover around just a few central questions. Um, and it just took a long time to do the different pieces that, that would put together an answer. The title, as soon as I picked the book up, I presumed it was an allusion to Susan Sontag. But you talk in the, uh, in the preface about Thoreau and about his influence on you when you were growing up. And particularly, I thought, interestingly, without ever, ever having read him. That is the most important thing about that anecdote about Thoreau influencing my childhood is that, yeah, he really did profoundly influence my childhood, uh, but not because I knew what he actually said, uh, nor had I, I read his writing until I was in my teen years. But yeah, I grew up in a, a kind of faceless suburb, as people do, um, just to the west of Boston, in Newton, Massachusetts. And, you know, one of the best things in that area was 
this good swimming pond where you could go as a state park and pay five bucks. And it's horrible, it should be said, to live in Boston in the summertime. It's humid and, and uh, ugly. And you could go and swim. Um, that pond, though, as it turned out, Walden Pond had had this crank who in the 19th century had built a little hut there and, um, you know, declared against everything, as it were. And, and now they had a gift shop in which two or three word phrases from his work could be purchased on T-shirts, you know, simplify, simplify. Beware any enterprise that requires the purchase of new clothes. I don't know if they've actually put that one on a t-shirt yet, but <laughs> I'm sure they will. And my mother and I used to go there. My mother, in many ways, a dissatisfied person, you know, in the way that, that a woman who, you know, a kind of professional woman in the, in the 70s and 80s trying to make it in a, in a man's world would be dissatisfied. And we would walk around the pond and perhaps... You know, she told me too much of adult life, but you have to learn sometime. <laughs> but we knew that there had been this man, Henry David Thoreau, who, whenever anyone was corrupt or self-interested or, or vainglorious or too rich or all the rest, would find a way to bring them down a peg. And, and so my mother would say, as we were talking, oh, I wonder what Thoreau would have thought about that. I wonder what Thoreau would have thought of that person with a Gucci umbrella passing us at the, you know, the state pond or something. And um, for me, I guess, when people ask me what I associate with philosophy or, or what I think the figure of the philosopher is as an ideal, I do just think of the crank who is prepared to ask whether, you know, the things universally praised and universally said to be good really are so good for me, for the individual, and whether the things that are universally vilified and known to be wicked and evil really are. So in that sense, you're absolutely right. With Against Everything, I had Sontag in mind, and she's a great hero of mine. And I had a little bit in mind, satirically, the kind of titles which now are out of control in their proliferation on the web, you know, against this, against that, against cats, to cat lovers, against dogs, to dog lovers, in order to kind of troll people. But in a very ordinary way, I did think of Skeptical Method, right, which runs from Socrates and through Thoreau and... And everyone else, that if, if you really want to believe in something even, you should test it first by asking what the lines of opposition would be. So the first section of the book has four chapters that are based loosely around themes of the body, um, but perhaps more specifically, areas which once have been private concerns that are now public concerns. Just say something about that idea, first of all, before we... Uh actually look specifically at the chapters. Oh, yeah. I mean, in that early part, um, especially in the relation of the private things of the body to the kind of public demands that are made, I really feel as if, to a degree, we don't adequately acknowledge we, living in 2016, have been liberated or we've been freed from, you know, necessities of life, mortal cares, that philosophers for thousands of years have, have identified as the things that hold us back from justice, democracy, sitting on clouds, plucking liars, etc. And yet, you know, now that these things are here and you can get food without endless hard labor and, and sexual desire has been uncoupled from the labor of childbearing, potentially everything else, do we live in the world of contemplation and freedom? Well, it often seems as if instead we've produced these new forms of necessity or seeming necessity, pseudo-necessity. God, if I don't go to the gym and get all my... My calories identified as numbers on the readout burn. Something terrible will happen to me. I'll live, you know, a month less or something. And indeed, it's as if there's a kind of paradox of freedom, which means that it's not even recognizable when it comes. And that's very much that first part of the book. 
Well, very specifically then on on that subject, let's look at the food chapter Mm. first, because as you said, this is obviously in the West, very specifically in the West. We live in a sort of post-scarcity world in terms of food nobody's starving you know there are obviously great amounts of inequality which will is something we'll talk about as we go through the interview but nobody is starving in the way that they are in parts of the developing world and so we've imposed lots of weird fetishistic restrictions on ourselves almost because of that haven't we yeah i mean i think it's it's especially usefully complicated with food let's say because First of all, that kind of early 20th century achievement, often called the agricultural revolution, tractorization of farming, the use of artificial fertilizers and so forth, really is extraordinary in suddenly producing massive quantities of food and, and lowering the price you know, of, of uh, three meals a day for everyone in the rich nations, at least. I mean, it's very, it's very well distributed within a country like uh, the United Kingdom or the United States. And this is, I mean, this is just... It's like the fulfillment of a dream <laughs> of millennia. You know, there aren't that many of them. And yet, of course, with all kinds of bad, uh, unintended consequences or side effects. And I think it's useful in thinking about food, especially for people who do follow the kind of lines of skeptical critique of such matters as well as the scientific achievements, to say that there's incredibly valuable and I think true and necessary political critique of industrialized agriculture right? It's dangers for the individual body and kind of overconsumption of calories, but also for, you know, what deagrarianization means for countries and what uh, factory farming needs for the food supply, etc. There's also, though, it seems to me, a totally different kind of consumerist-driven quasi-moral business of deliberate restriction. I will only eat, I like organic foods, I must say, I believe in them, right? But I will only eat these organic foods from these sources in this quantity produced by these people, um, as a mode of distinction, it seems, or as a mode of the kind of restoration of labor, not labor that you'll do yourself, but somebody else's labor, which you will pay for in cash, to foods in a largely notional, fictional, or evanescent way. And the latter, I think, really does need to be pulled apart from the genuine political critique, but it's not easy to do. There's no one soundbite um, that will leave you in the clear, right? I'm Natalie Haynes, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. We published on the website a couple of weeks ago an essay um, by a guy pseudonymously known as the Guy Liner um, about this, like the rise of, in the UK, it's obviously a UK thing, um, although I guess there's a ver- there's sort of versions of it in, in the US as well, but because it's particularly American food, suddenly there's all of these, like, posh burger bars where you can go and pay like you know twenty dollars for for a nice burger and this is like a fashionable thing and there's like pulled pork and stuff you know all of these things that you couldn't get here 10 years ago suddenly are proliferating at the same time those sort of foods which obviously in america are you know are considered very sort of like working person type foods we have this very punitive regime of saying to working class people in this country fat is that fatism is the last acceptable prejudice you know we have this very moral bearing down on people about them eating badly and poorly and eating processed foods and how that's a moral failing um, regardless of the fact that you know they might live in a food desert or whatever and can't get any fresh food and yet hipsters are out there you know eating 20 dollar burgers it just seems insane it is insane i mean i i agree and you know this is um, 
Despite my genial exterior, Neil, yes, uh, one of the, the good things about the book is that if you sit down for weeks and months and really pour over the things that bother you, it allows you to access deep wells of rage <laughs> of, I think, a useful kind. And certainly the essay, What Was the Hipster, in a way, treats one phenomenon that's key to what you're describing with the upscale burger, that is um, the kind of enchantment of things that uh, speak to the, you know, the cultures and folkways of the working class or just of work or even just of a kind of normalcy or ordinary life in which um, rather than worrying about moral enchantment, you're just saying like, oh, what tastes good? A hamburger. Should I be eating it? Maybe not. <laughs> or maybe so. And tries to pull apart how those things work for the sake of uh, big words, distinction, domination, the class system, right? At the same time, there is something really crucial to be said about the burger bars, but also about all the essays in that body section, exercise, sex, food, etc., that a lot of the things that are offered to us as lately essentially moral, I think, or, or offering a substitute ethics, especially when they're around health. And sometimes they can be used in a persecutory way, right? Yes, you fatties are the last ones we can really abuse. And sometimes I think they're used in a way that's um, mostly self-lacerating, right? How will I ever be a successful person if I don't have, I don't know how many you're supposed to have, six abdominal muscles visible, eight, etc. That all of these things belonging to moral regimes truly aren't. I mean, at best, they may be sort of prudential, thinking about how long you'd like to live, Mostly, I think they're to do with grooming, not a bad thing. We know from the animal kingdom, you know, picking nits out of your gorilla fur. But they really can't bear the kind of weight that we put upon them if we think of them as having this moral charge and, and the ought, you know, the ought and the should. And really kind of terrible things happen to our ability just to have decent lives if we allow them to do so. I want to talk about the, the chapter, The Rise of the Sex Children. Um, <laughs> Afternoon of the Sex Children, I should say. Still my, my favourite title. <laughs> Afternoon of the Sex Children. Afternoon of the Sex Children. Um, you've mentioned you know, the idea of sexual desire being divorced from childbearing earlier on. You talk in this chapter about an essential difference between the idea of sexual liberation and sexual liberalism. What is that difference? Oh yeah, it seems to me really crucial, this, this distinction between liberation and liberalization, let's say. Not only around sex, but even the other things we're describing. Your burger example. <laughs> it's good It's good to have. I now have an imaginary burger on the table in front of me that I can uh, direct all my attacks to. But essentially the distinction, it says this, that true liberation is a situation in which the things that you already do are finally freed of costs from elsewhere. Uh, social opprobrium and kind of, you know, religious assault. But also, I don't know, you can just do the things freely. You don't have to pay for them. Uh, you don't require any experts to tell you how to do them, etc. Well, also, you Ooh. have the freedom not to do those things. Crucially, yes. You have the freedom to just say, oh, it doesn't really matter to me that much. I know, you know, I know it's part of who I am, but, or maybe it's not even. Liberalization, seems to me, is the process that we often see, even after activists and, you know, kind of identity movements free something up, in which the culture of authority will say, oh, oh, you want to be able to experience your sex lives freely? Oh, okay, we see. Well, that's fine. You just have to remember that, well, you're not really doing it right, but we have experts who can help you learn how to do it right. Or, oh, it would really be better if you bought this tool or toy that we can offer you, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I really do think in a capitalist society, this is often the way in which liberation, for better and for worse, comes to us. Not in the sense of, 
yeah, go ahead, do it. You don't need me to tell you anything. But in this kind of endless world of expertise and product and payment, who needs that? And also in terms of commercialization, because it's yeah. one thing to say, okay, well, we're going to commercialize in terms of sex toys or whatever the actual having of sex, but to use sex to sell children's toys or chocolate bars or whatever is it all. Whole other thing. Yeah, and you know, that particular essay, The Afternoon of the Sex Children, it leads from this kind of paradox, if that's what it is, just something I didn't understand, a juxtaposition. Why should it be that, let's say, a media culture seems so profoundly interested in sexual youth in the sense of like 18, 19, 20, up to age 30, maybe, and you know, the things kids do on spring break and the great sex colonies of college and all the rest? And on the other hand, to have this kind of super punitive regime for pedophilia, right, as the ultimate evil beyond murder, beyond child abuse of other kinds, etc. And I began to think, well, is there any sense in which there could be a connection between the two? Or, you know, could it be the case that the kind of um, valuing of uh, child sexuality is not really to preserve distinctions to let children be free of sexualization or sexual interest, but in order to preserve this other competitive system of like the dreamy uh, Britney Spears or whatever figure. And what was funny to me about that essay, although very instructive, was that in trying to think through what I thought was about sex, I really came to believe that the thing I was thinking about and, and um, the thing that should concern us is youth, insofar as much more than sex, which really is universally possessed, youth becomes a kind of natural competitive principle, something that just because time goes in one direction is always vanishing, which really does allow people to enter our minds and sell us all sorts of things on the basis of this kind of endless, evanescent, vanishing biological property. And yet, once you begin to think it all through, you think, what's so great about being young, right? You're just like an unfinished human who doesn't know anything yet. And yet it's surprising how many things turn out to be built on it culturally. And that feeds in, obviously, to the other things you talk about in this part as well. Obviously, like, exercise, you know, we're all obsessed with exercising because we want to stay young and we want to live forever. But at the same time, food, you know, we all don't eat because, you know, we've got to stay young, we've got to stay thin because that's the optimal sexually attractive being. I think that's exactly right. And yes, I feel we should uh, we should all develop the courage to um, perhaps not live as long as uh, every human being could and um, to be a bit more slovenly. We should all eat burgers. <laughs> well, I don't know, actually. You know, one of, the <laughs> one of the things about a book like this is that you do discover the things that you don't do which you should. And um, certainly I've been struggling again. I'm not a vegetarian. My wife is. But I'm not because of um, essentially self-interested reasons. I mean, I just, I really, really do enjoy eating meat enormously. It doesn't do me any credit. And um, similarly, maybe slightly more defensively, uh, I grew up with a lot of food restrictions. And I thought to myself, God, I want to be the sort of person who is convivial enough that if anybody sets a plate of food in front of me, no matter how disgusting it might be to me, I'll just say, oh, we're hanging out, we're having dinner, I'll eat it. As I go back and reread this book and I think of things that I should do differently, I really do think vegetarianism is quite clearly one thing at the individual level that would make an extraordinary, extraordinary difference in the food supply. And so once again, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be a vegetarian. Well, I thought it was interesting that you said very specifically in that, in that part, I'm not a vegetarian because I'm immoral. 
Yeah, I think because I, um, right, because I, I think, I, yes, I say be, not because I think it's defensible, but yes, because I'm immoral, but also because I have not yet uh, developed the strength of character or will to become one, but I hope to by and by. And, and um, I'm trying. I am trying again. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Mark Greif. We're talking about his book, Against Everything. Mark, just referring back to the things we've just talked about in the first part, about how the you're writing about how things that were once private have become public. And as I mentioned early on, a lot of these essays are quite old. And particularly some of those essays predate the age of social media. If things were bad when you were writing them, they're exponentially worse now, aren't they? No, it's true. It's nice because I get the opportunity for people to come up and say, how are you ever so prescient in you know, 2006? And I say, you just don't remember how bad things were a decade ago. There's a number of chapters in the book where you, you basically subtitle them The Meaning of Life. Mm. I want to go through some of those in order. And the first is around the idea of experience. Well, with those Meaning of Life essays, I wanted to see if it was possible to do a kind of essay in which you would fix in mind what troubled you, um, but you would really start from zero in explanation, try to start without theories. And so that essay on experience and the concept of experience, it really just came out of the sense that if I asked myself, 
why I lived the way I did, that is one of the older essays. So let's say in my 20s, in my early 30s, how did I justify what I did in, in a whole host of kind of banal domains, you know, choosing jobs, dating, uh, even deciding whether to leave the house at night for a party or stay home and read, this word would come up again and again for me, experience. Well, it'll be an experience. Well, what will the experience of it be like? Blah, blah, blah. And I began to think, what is that exactly? Uh, as a term, it seems to assume uh, an inordinate weight in my own deliberations. So that essay was just an enterprise in trying to figure out everything it might mean, but also everything it might do, and, and whether there weren't systems of justification, let's say, and of rationale beneath a lot of our ordinary behaviors day to day, which didn't really get picked up by the kind of grand ethical theories that would be taught in, in universities. Um, and then moving on to the second one, you again start off with a sort of look at starting a new magazine and how you know people were critical of the fact that when you have a magazine, you should have a position, you should have a, a political position. And so indeed, you, you, know, you, you come up with some, and a couple of the things you've already mentioned as we were talking in, in the first part, but you, um, well, tell us what those are. Let's talk about those, particularly the, um, the sort of universal citizen income, which, as you've said, this was a, when you were writing it, was obviously a, you know, I mean, it was an old idea, but what, not one that was in the political mainstream by any means. Whereas suddenly now, you know, countries are having failed referenda on, on whether or not to introduce it, but it is an yes, idea that's going to have its day, I think. Yeah, well, it, that's the essay that perhaps has been most shifted by time because, right, the title of it is um, Redistribution or Gut-Level Legislation, or maybe it's the other way around, where the idea is just when people come to you and say, what are your politics, there's this invitation usually to identify with a set of positions, party, platform, etc. And there I thought, well, if someone were to ask me that, as indeed they had begun doing kind of in challenge to N plus one, I thought, well, what would I really like, regardless of whether it's politically feasible, you know, for this country, for the rich countries, etc. And indeed, recently, actually on this UK tour, you know, a, a much more policy-oriented place where I was speaking, the RSA, they um, emailed and said, oh, you'll be coming to speak. And we noticed that in your essay on redistribution, you call for a universal citizen's income. They say, you don't use those words. <laughs> indeed, I didn't use those words because um, there was a sense in which it wasn't actually intended as representing any uh, particularly feasible or familiar position, except insofar as it did speak, I think you're absolutely right, to kind of universal uh, desires and a very long tradition of thinking about what would make a society fairer if, for example, everyone had some initial stake. Uh, the other key part of that essay is that it largely goes into an explanation of why, as much as we should free the poor from super poverty, uh, we should, for many of the same reasons, try to free the wealthy from super wealth, and that super wealth is just as bad for the wealthy as super poverty is for the poor, even if uh, they don't always recognize it. But yeah, in many ways, I understood that that essay too to be kind of winkingly restating things that are in Oscar Wilde's Soul of Man under Socialism. And, you know, there is a line of, let's say, political thinking, especially about economy and redistribution that belongs to these outliers, characters written off as silly or, or esthetes, uh, wild, Ruskin, uh, certainly a whole kind of 19th century alliance between arts and crafts and workers in, in the United Kingdom, Thoreau in the U.S., which, you know, it's a line that it seems to me um, more generative and vital than a lot of what 
gets passed around just as policy now. So that was that was an effort at that in that essay. And I guess the idea is that, you know, freed from both extreme poverty and extreme wealth, people would sort of gravitate to more inward-looking pursuits, like becoming themselves. But as we discussed in, in the first part, you know, there's lots of aspects of life wherein you would think that the capitalist society has given us those sort of freedoms anyway in terms of, like, food scarcity and things. But that's not what's happened. You know, the opposite has happened in that everybody wants more and people are more and more the more people have the more dissatisfied they are yeah and just in very practical terms i think it is always astonishing the ways in which money and its convertibility wind up just misdirecting people so that certainly you know i remember going to college with a friend who was a kind of brilliant physicist uh who would have continued in it and worked in a lab and done you know who knows what he would have discovered about the fabric of the universe but he had come to school poor and you know on a scholarship and he went into um, currency trading and uh, a friend told me actually about this conversation, a friend of a friend where his advisor finally called up and he was like, I've got it. I, I got some more funding. I can have you back. We can figure out the stuff we wanted to. And he said somewhat jadedly, he's like, yes, I could go back, but I moved five million euros in pesos today. That's where the real action is. Well, you know, the real action is probably in the fabric of the physical universe. <laughs> and not to be too moralistic about it myself, because it's precisely moralism that I would most like to avoid, but it does seem as if it really would be good to kind of defend and, and create room for everyone's individual excellence. Like, the person who really is a great gambler and a great trader, I would love that person to be a, a bond trader. Let them do it, right? But not everybody. And similarly, you know... I wouldn't want the bond trader to make more money than anyone else such that, you know, the Philistine bond trader is the one who decides for us which paintings should be bought and and um, what politicians will say because he's able to buy access to them on the golf course and everything else. Yeah, that essay on redistribution, I guess, uh, I see it now, Neil. <laughs> if it has a point, I mean, I think the point is really that the purpose of some of these visions of redistribution of wealth is not, as is sometimes thought, charity, um, nor their focus simply on the people who are worst off or most desperate. But actually, the goal really should be freedom and freedom for everyone to have enough money at the bottom and then to not have the kinds of um, incentives of far too much money at the top so that they would genuinely pursue the things they loved and were best at rather than the things that were kind of socially misvalued because of how much you could skim off the top. I'm Alex Cox, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. You mentioned also in the first part when we were talking about M plus one, about how as the, you know, the magazine had evolved, it had become more explicitly political. In particular, you had a, a, a long association with the Occupy movements and covered those in other publications. That moment of optimism just seems like a historical thing, though. It just seems to have dissipated. And obviously, you know, we don't have to get deeply into the political situation that's going on in America right now as we as we sit here. But it, it, it does seem like that optimism is just gone. It's interesting. I mean, I think um, from the U.S. perspective, it's not. And in that sense, actually, it's very nice. Uh, I feel like I can bring actual news thanks mm. to a British Airways flight. It's been really striking to me in the past week in the U.K. how much Black Lives Matter is not visible or looks like a phenomenon essentially of police violence. Whereas I would say, you know, whatever the kinds of energies 
were of citizen protest and democratic demand that were brought to the fore in Occupy and then really were crushed by police violence, it must be said. I mean, people were not prepared for the, the kind of militarized policing that cleared the camps. And also, I think, a very middle-class protest in Occupy just saying, why can't things be a little more fair, really wasn't even intellectually capable of grasping the kinds of unfairnesses and aggression that come with policing. I think all those things have been taken up into Black Lives Matter. And that movement and its kind of anti-racist agenda, but also like a really very wide and encompassing agenda of economic justice and everything else, plus, although it's temporarily out of the news, um, Bernie Sanders' run for the Democratic nomination really represents a kind of... um, spectrum of intelligence, activism, possibility that's beyond anything, anything at all that existed when N plus one started. So um, yeah, I'm like here to bring the good news. I think things are incredibly good in the United States for political futures right now. And I also think Trump, as long as he loses, and um, I feel he will, although then when you run this under President Trump, you know, it'll be embarrassing. As long as he loses, I think uh, we in America can thank him and give him a medal for having uh, lifted the mask off of all kinds of uh, racisms and white supremacy, male supremacy in the Republican Party that they had been able to, you know, kind of state out of the side of their mouths while pretending not to endorse. We talked about experience. And then you talk about its opposite, anti-experience, specifically something which I've not come across before called anesthetic ideology. What do you mean by that? <laughs> yeah, sometimes I referred to it uh, to myself as aesthetic illness, but then I thought people might take it seriously as an illness, like how do I catch aesthetic illness, all the rest. I became interested, I guess, in the things I would see on television, especially or online, the kind of practices of media, which you would think would be arousing, exciting, frightening, terrifying, etc. All of the car crashes and machine gunnings, both real and imagined, you know, whether it's Fast and the Furious or some ISIS video, which when I actually took them in, I found what? Numbing is maybe the wrong word because it takes us into something that's more familiar, but an aesthetic that is just removing feelings from all sorts of domains as if I had been kind of you know wrapped around in cotton wool or something like that and I began to ask about the flip side to that business of collecting experiences oh you know I went off to Ibiza oh I did this or that which is just a kind of wish to get in bed I mean I suppose we often call it depression but again I wanted to stay away from the medicalizing vocabulary and that essay is very much about the ways in which the desire to collect experiences and live the best life and the thrillingest life can just flip over into their opposite, a sense that nothing really has a character of feeling or that life would be best if it were really possible somehow to hide from the endless intrusions uh, of beeping phones. And uh, I don't know why I hate them more than all other people, but uh, hamburger sacks that talk to you about how much you're going to enjoy the hamburger you're about to eat and we care about you so much this meat was sourced from happy cows all this kind of stuff I just feel shouted at all the time and so yeah aesthetic anesthetic ideology was about the kind of flip side of that there's very we have that sort of packaging you referring to the packaging mm-hmm. you? Well, a, um, I won't know what your names but there's a particular um, smoothie company over here that mm-hmm. when it first started was like a you know a a very small sort of mom and pop operation and, and all natural products. 
and it had that whole sort of like babyish sort of packaging that talked to you as if it's your friend. Yes. And then of course that company was bought by you know McDonald's or right. sort of something, you know. And yet, so you still get that. You still get that sort of. It's a weird thing to be upset about. I agree, but it is also deeply offensive that a product that you're just consuming is talking to you in that sort of not just like friendly way, but explicitly childish way as well. I yes, think there's well, something odd about that. Yeah, absolutely. But it's always troubled me. It just seems a kind of institutionalization of the lie, right? Because many people might say they care about you and not really care about you. But you can be pretty certain that the packaging on something that you buy at Tesco <laughs> does not represent someone anywhere caring deeply about you and your needs, you know. And we see it everywhere. I mean, you can't even get on the train anymore, alas, without there being some sign, always in the imperative voice, you do this and you do that, about how you're being, like, swaddled and loved by not falling into the gap. <laughs> That's a tremendous loss, I think, for the ability to just kind of use the language sanely and, and walk around in a, a day-to-day life where you know who your friends are and, and who aren't your friends. Again, at, at risk of um, pointing out exactly when we were recording this interview, there was a great tweet last night, Tic Tac... Uh, respects women or something, you know, and is, and is <laughs> deeply offended by, by these comments made by Donald Trump. Well, I mean, yeah, well, I mean, I imagine yeah. TikTok probably doesn't respect all of the women that are working on its production lines for long hours or minimum wage, yeah. making it sweet. There is no TikTok. TikTok is right. TikTok is a firm. I mean, I, I feel like. Yes, the kind of the tragic uh, personalization and then infantilization of all public address really is something like a toxic cloud, you know? I mean, the origins of it should be found and and dammed up with gigantic slabs of concrete. (laughs) And yet, yes, sometimes I feel I'm the only one who minds. There's also a chapter in the book about reality television, which again is something that's that's sort of grown exponentially over the period of time when you've been writing these essays. Certainly looks back to what we were talking about in the first part about, you know, making the private public. But also surely fits into this anaesthetic ideology side as well, doesn't it? Yeah, the essay on reality television I've come to see over the years is much more of a defence of the form than I had realised, because... There, too, I think there is a kind of class hostility from the world of the official to reality TV, even though it's what they're airing all the time, right? And often a mistaken discourse in trying to describe the revulsion that one sometimes feels even while enjoying it, um, or the hostility to it on the basis of voyeurism or, you know, looking in on people acting badly. And the truth of it is, I've, you know, always been quite a watcher of particular genres of reality television. I used to watch the cops shows endlessly. Um, and then there was a particular realm of dating shows, which I discuss in the essay, which I, there were like a period of years where I felt like all I did when I had the time was watch, you know, these dating shows, the cheapest things ever, eliminate three-way dating, who knows what they all were. And I began to just ask myself, what is it I'm looking for and what am I enjoying? I mean, I came to believe really that reality television shows much more than we acknowledge are about judgment in our relation to them and kind of legitimate judgment, sometimes quite simply, you know, our judging the bad behavior of fools, 
but at other times judging real excellences you know the person who um on the jersey shore uh snooki is just kind of despite being a tiny otherwise unappealing person incredibly charismatic in her oratory you know like uh, che or, or adolf hitler or something right or on all the dancing and singing shows people who do well at, at legitimate arts of a very social and ordinary form everyone sings in the shower here's someone who can do it before the nation but judging is not exactly either good or bad you can't vilify it or praise it it's a part of our lives that maybe goes unacknowledged a lot of the time and doesn't have a kind of unofficial domain to act in um, outside of the courts and schools and all the rest and that's how i began to think about reality tv and of course the thing that most interested me is that when it does seem we have a, a kind of paucity of representations of the collective the we or society or a people whatever uh, apart from the official some of those shows, both the worst of them, and I'm thinking of like Survivor, which always made me upset, and the best of them, which are often the house shows where people are just kind of alternately nice and mean to each other for a while, they really did have something to say about ways of imagining or testing out being together or democracy or the collective. And the essay is a, an effort to kind of tease those things out. And very satisfyingly, since it was a few years ago, I finally, for this edition, got to write a new theory of the Kardashians, right up to date, uh, trying to take up their characteristic excellences and also truly, truly horrific, vile excesses. There was a, a very weird phenomenon that's just happened where Kim Kardashian was just you know, violently robbed at gunpoint and tied up. People seem to take great joy in that, which I found a bit oh, upsetting. Really? Yeah, yeah I, I haven't. I, um, I suppose I've been temporarily cut off from the media sphere. First, it was so strange. It seemed as if uh, suddenly she had been like pushed into an Audrey Hepburn movie. I mean, she was robbed in Paris of her jewels. You know, with, with my daughter, we read... Like Sherrod. Yeah, we read, we read these storybooks with my daughter that are largely about burglars in Paris, always in striped shirts and a little, you know, a little mask covering their eyes coming in to rob people of jewels. <laughs> I don't quite know how that happened. I mean, I think the kind of hostility to and schadenfreude for the reality star is curious because it's part of the whole effect of reality TV, right? Is that... These are the people who are fully handleable in some way, even more than other kinds of public figures, even more perhaps than other celebrities. And again, at its root, I think no bad thing. These people become not quite our Greek gods, but, you know, sort of like the mortal chessmen whom the Greek gods played with. We get to watch these people and get our hands in and judge them with freedom in order to think through our own situation. That said, the front end of it, or the public manifestations, must be very ugly, because, right, you forget that here's a person who is terrified and robbed because she's a figure in our, in our collective play. I'm Olivia Lang, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Almost certainly coming out of the rise of reality TV as a sort of, on a sort of macro level, is, is the rise of YouTube as well, which you talk about which has enabled people to make their own little versions of reality TV, I guess. Although, interestingly, I think this is one of the essays where you, you include a postscript where you basically talk about how you got YouTube wrong in a lot of ways in the mm. original essay. Yeah, well, I mean, YouTube, uh, when I first took it up, was mostly thrilling, but also befuddling. And that essay especially, I really enjoyed doing it because... It was one of those thinking situations in which I knew that pretty much every conclusion I reached 
would be wrong <laughs> in the sense that, you know, I would get to something and I would say, ah, I've discovered something and there would be another example to falsify it or to change it. And that for YouTube, I think, is the real fascination of following these pathways where, you know, suddenly you're looking at film taken at like a heavy metal concert in a monster truck rally and then you're watching cats and then you're watching babies and then you're watching you know someone opening up a box of the the camera they've just bought etc that it's very hard to say what the totality is or to do the traditional kind of critical uh, judgment where you say i understand the form of it i understand the shape of it the description of the shape becomes quite sinuous and complicated that said, it was thrilling all the way through. I mean, I, and YouTube, insofar as it corresponds to a long-held dream and one that I've always really bought into, of the possibility that broadcast media might come to belong to us rather than to them, right? That it might really be for people just to kind of put parts of their lives up without commercial interference rather than to be told stories that are good for us from above while selling us soap powders seemed ideal. That said, that, that postscript and the recent updating, it describes errors on two fronts. One, the error which I feel quite you know, happy about, that is to say that new things emerged on YouTube that I never could have imagined as new genres, and genres that I previously hadn't thought were very good, like the vlogs where people just talk to the camera, actually had turned out to be quite good after a while, at least for somebody. But the other part of it was a real anger or disappointment that YouTube has been more and more overwritten by the them uh, or the they who decide what we'll watch. And, you know, if there's one thing I truly hate about YouTube, uh, along with all the things that I love, it's been the progressive intrusion of advertisements onto what had been a space for people to just put anything up. And that's, you know, it's a big dialectic of the book, uh, how each time you see something that looks like even a little step towards liberation, there will be someone to come along and try to make money off it again and, and almost inevitably ruin the experience. Just one more question then. We finish up the book back at Walden Pond. Why? Uh, it's funny, you know, in trying to figure out how to explain the book to people and what it would mean even to be uh, against everything as a method, right? Surely all of us should do this, you know? Uh, it's like the gold prospectors. If you find a nugget, you should bite into it to find out if it's gold or fool's gold or what. Anyway, in explaining it, I had the kind of front matter and back matter, the introductions and the conclusions, originally just full of more, you know, elliptical statements and puns and madnesses, and, and um, it just wasn't registering. And I began to think, well, somehow I have to explain to people why anyone would be entitled to get up on a soapbox and, and make these grand declarations. And for me, it was the example of someone else and the example of Thoreau in this Walden Pond world that justified it. If at the beginning of the book, as we talked about earlier, it seemed important to say a philosopher is someone who might help you whether or not you ever even read him or her. Um, it's enough to know that there's somebody out there who's just being a jerk about the right things to be a jerk about. At the end of the book, I wanted to think again, and that's what that essay, Thoreau Trailer Park, is about, about the temptation, as at the ending of a book, to feel that you've landed on certain exalted things and you should feel proud of them. And I think of that essay especially as a kind of an essay against pride, including my own, in that, you know, it reflects on the fact that Walden Pond, through a beautiful state park, um, had right next to it a trailer park full of trailer homes people lived in that the state park worked very hard to um, wipe out. 
and they did. I mean, they got rid of it as an eyesore, you know. How dare poor people live here on this beautiful plot, even though that's largely what Thoreau had argued for in kind of building a shack for himself. Um, and similarly, that essay takes up Occupy a bit. And the people I met there who, by the end, had convinced me that they were much wiser or certainly more courageous in politics than I was because they didn't come to things from the perspective of, you know, petty bourgeois. I mean, I say in that essay, I went home to sleep from Occupy. I had an apartment rented. You know, I would sleep in my bed and feel very proud of myself. Um, but there were a set of people who even face-to-face -face with, you know, the courts and the law and judges didn't put on nice clothes, didn't dress up, didn't express themselves as anything but what they were. And initially I thought, well, that's crazy. If you're dealing with the law, you need to speak their language. And I suppose this is, this is the class fraction I belong to, right? You can learn to be professional. But I felt in that essay that I had learned actually the degrees to which I still had endless things to learn and still do have endless things to learn, you know? True knowledge is discovering <laughs> that you know nothing. And so to end with Thoreau there and to end with those occupiers, I thought would be a gesture of um, invitation, at least, for people uh, to think, ah, what's come from this book, if something has come from it, has been thinking itself and it's the thing that's universally distributed and it's the thing that I do too and, and can do more. You've been listening to Little Atoms. I've been talking to Mark Greif about his book Against Everything, which is out now in the UK from Verso. So, Mark, thank you very much for taking the time to share it with us. Thank you so much. An absolute pleasure. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.